Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host, Octavia Bright. How are you, Octavia? I am a little grumpy today because of the weather. (laughs) It will shock you to know that I got caught in the rain earlier, and then I got caught out by messed up trains because the government is so crap and everyone's having to strike in order to get paid decently. And so I'm just, I'm generally feeling very like grumble, grumble, broken Britain today. (laughs) I was feeling very broken Britain today because the post from the last two weeks just arrived today. Like it just hasn't come. Oh my God. (laughs) So yeah, I really feel you on that. And yeah, the weather's tough. It's the darkening days are tough. It's so tough, right? And it just also makes me feel basically like I've become this kind of like grumpy old person who just complains about infrastructure and like the looming darkness. But I didn't see that for myself at 37. (laughs) (laughs) I spent a really long time talking about train routes the other day with somebody and I was like, I'm actually enjoying this. I have to say that's still a conversation that makes me want to die. It it makes me feel my life force (laughs) ebbing out of me like with every second that it goes on. I mean, I obviously want to talk about other things. But... I know, I know, I know. <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. Anyway. To add? <laughs> well, I will add this. We decided we talk about the weather so much that it was finally time for us to do an episode about it. So that's going to be our Patreon. So if you want more <laughs> chats like this and you're not a patron yet, sign up. Absolutely do. Yeah. So just in case you don't know where you can do that yet, we are on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash lit friction. And if you sign up there, you will get access to an extra mini set each month. And there are now over 30 waiting for you there. And you can also suggest themes. So please do. We love it when you do this. We really do. But now back to Minisode 44, and thanks for tuning in. The format for these Minisodes between full shows is for the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately. That's right. And this month, our theme is parenthood. So back in February of last year, you may remember that we did a mini-sode about mothers in literature where we got into the symbolic weight that's heaped on the figure of the mother in particular. And we talked a little bit about watching our friends become mothers and how both of our relationships to books about mothers have changed as we've got older and maybe started contemplating the question of motherhood in our own lives. And then we followed that up with a mini-sode about fathers as well. And in those conversations, we mentioned books like Toni Morrison's Beloved, Deborah Levy's Hot Milk. We also talked about Ben Lerner's The Topeka School, which of course we interviewed Ben about on the show a a long time ago now. And we also talked about Elena Ferrante's The Lost Daughter. We talked about Donald Winnicott, the psychologist, and his concept of the good enough mother. So we got into all of these things. And we also talked about how queer parenting and how a version of heterosexual parenting that's maybe more interested in equity between both parents might be loosening the boundaries of what was traditionally considered to be the maternal and the paternal. And like, however incrementally these changes are happening, we came down on the side that, of course, this can only be a really, really good thing for everyone involved in any family, in any capacity. Yeah, I actually came down on the other side. Oh, did you? I decided to be a trad wife. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Wait, you're going to be a trad wife who's obsessed with transport. Yes. Harry. (laughs) I don't know what to do about this information. But anyway, this is where we decided 
to pick up and continue the conversation, which obviously in light of Carrie's recent revelation is incredibly urgent. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta start popping them out now. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, Um, oh, you want to rescue me. You want to convince me otherwise. I want to bring you back out from the brink of trad wifedom only because I just, I don't believe that it's your authentic wish for yourself, knowing you very, very well. (laughs) But anyway, we wanted to we wanted to return to this idea, but we wanted to just come back to parenthood in general. So parenthood as it's explored in the books that we've read, maybe some of the books we've read more recently, and also inevitably in some of the books we haven't read yet, but we're looking forward to reading. And so I think really, you know, the first question that I want to think through with you, my dear Carrie Plitt, is do you think that fiction is a good form for exploring not just the conditions of parenthood, but like the experience of parenthood? Mm, good question, my dear Octavia Bright. Um, that's <laughs> <been> sarcastic, I'm sorry. <laughs> it sounded so sarcastic. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> I, you are dear to me. But yeah, it's, it is a good question. And you are dear to me. And it's hard for me to know because I'm not a parent. So I I can't say whether the form of fiction is accurately capturing the experience of what it's like. What I will say is that I read a lot of stories that feature parenting and parenthood. I love a family saga, as listeners know. And it's easier to point to the differences of these portraits in terms of experience rather than the universalities. Mm. Actually, that makes me think that literature is pretty good at exploring the experience of parenting because my perception is that every parenthood journey is so different. And indeed, my friends who are parents have often said that it's hard to describe the experience of being a parent, partially because it's such a clash of different emotions, often all at the same time. And, you know, on top of this idea that literature can give us many, many different views of what something is like, I think it also is a medium that's pretty good at layering different feelings and states of mind together. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking about, I just finished Paul Murray's novel, The Beasting, which is an Irish novel about a family on the verge of financial ruin. And there's so much in this book about parenting, especially because it's told from the perspective of all of the different family members. And you often see events from multiple perspectives, which really makes you think about parenting and 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 how children and parents in particular experience things so differently so but also even two parents experience things so differently from each other and this line in particular struck me from the novel which is told from the father dickie's perspective but in life he discovered parenthood was like it was living with a person a new person with strong opinions strong tastes arbitrary swings of emotion all of them addressed at you. (laughs) You were the passive one. The work of care was primarily to endure, to weather the endless buffeting storms of unmediated will. And I think that gets at something, that parenting is living with another person. And it means it's going to be a different experience for everyone. It's it's a relationship. It's a negotiation. He's also in a pretty dark place at that point in the novel, (laughs) getting along with his teenage daughter. But anyway... All of those friends with kids have also said that everything they read, both fiction and parenting manuals, don't really fully prepare them for the experience. So there's also clearly a limit to what fiction can do, even the multiplicity of portraits that are available to us. I don't know. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I love that quote. And actually, I think that that is like, they should be handing that out at NCT classes or whatever they call them. Because <laughs> I think actually, people don't re- really realize, like, I'm astonished, actually, by how frequently it seems. I'm not talking about people I necessarily know, but just it sort of seems in general, people don't think about children as people. They think about them as an extension of themselves yes. or as something more like a pet that they can impose their will on or whatever, rather than like a, a, an individual with their own personality. So yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic quote. And I think it's very important because I also think it's important to remember that parenting is not just something that happens to children, <laughs> right? Like parenting is a lifelong experience if you choose to take the step towards it. And that that's a very important thing to kind of hold on to. But yeah, I think like really parenthood is something that, you know, there's plenty of literature out there, particularly literature from the past that romanticizes parenthood, again, especially in relation to like the mother and the maternal, which we got into in in our other episode. But I think that, you know, evidently, and it sounds like this is maybe something that's explored in The Beasting, any romantic notion of parenting and parenthood gets completely thrown out the window by the much more complex reality once you have a child. And I think I've definitely read a load of novels where there is this kind of vision of it that feels unrealistically easy or pleasant or fulfilling even, like simply directly fulfilling for people, which again, I just think the experience looks like it's full of much more ambivalence than that. But like, I'm thinking of like Louisa May Alcott, those kinds of books, you know, like The Little Women and Joe's Boys or whatever it's called, which got up my nose so much. But I think that, you know, I've been reading more and more fiction that presents what strikes me as a way more rounded and genuine view, right? Like I recently listened to an audio version of Ben Lerner reading his story, Café Lou, which is spelled L-O-U-P, by the way. But anyway, it's it's basically about the constant anxiety of parenthood. And it's narrated by this guy who's a dad. And I won't give too much away, but basically it brings together like the anxiety of caring for a child, also the anxiety of end of life and how becoming a parent brings like your own mortality into view in a really profound and unavoidable way. And I'm also in the middle of reading this great novel called The Nursery by Sylvia Molnar, which paints an astonishingly vivid and like very darkly funny picture of the days of a very early motherhood with all of their ambivalence and their confusion and sleep deprivation and this kind of wild surreality and, and actually the loneliness and alienation that I think is very, very common to new parents and probably particularly new mothers or or if you're the parent who's breastfeeding. But yeah, in their different ways, both that short story and that novel explore also brilliantly what parenthood does to time, I think, actually, and how like becoming a parent warps and shifts your relationship to the future and to the present, like to the moment, you know, which I think is something that fiction writing can do so, so well, because it can play with your experience of time as the reader while you're reading on the page, probably much more effectively, I think, than than like visual mediums, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And yeah, the, the feelings. Right. (laughs) The feelings. (laughs) (laughs) But I was also thinking of Ferrante's Neapolitan Quartet in this regard, because those novels stretch over such a long time. They show us the different ways that becoming a parent affects Leela and Lenu. And, and her characters are pretty much always put in the context of their own experience of being children of parents as well. Mm, like, I mm. love the way that she doesn't silo those things. But I was also thinking, of course, about Sheila Hetty's motherhood, which I read quite recently and I found absolutely phenomenal. 
And I think it's a book that shows that fiction, I mean, also just writing in general, but, you know, writing that treads the fictional boundary can be such a brilliant medium for exploring the, the agony of the decision, right? The choice to parent or not to parent is this huge choice in the lives of some people and in the lives of other people, it's not a choice at all. It's something that happens or can't happen. And, you, you know, your agency is actually removed in the question. So again, like even within the question of, of whether it is something that happens or doesn't happen, there's not universality, right? Do you know what I mean? Definitely. So do you think literature is good at depicting the experience? As a non-parent, yes. I wonder, I would like to speak to some parents who've read a lot of this stuff and see <laughs> if they feel that it gets even close. I mean, yeah. one thought I did have was like, you know, does it skew slightly negative? Like, what would it be like to read a book that's all about the like love and like euphoria or whatever? Does that exist? I don't know. Not that I've come across, but maybe I wouldn't be drawn to it anyway. Well, it. I think there has been a kind of cultural corrective that's happened recently where there was a sense that there were too many romantic portraits of parenthood. And so a lot of writers have like been like, I want to write a novel about what it's really like to be a mother. So, so maybe we are in a place where maybe it skews more negative, you know, sort of like, why has nobody told me this before I'm going to depict it, but I don't have any data for that. It just is how it feels to me in some yeah. ways. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's all happening in the trad wife sphere, man. I just don't know. <laughs> I'll find out yeah. soon enough. You can be our reporter from the front line. But what about nonfiction? Like, do you go to nonfiction writing about parenthood for something maybe different from, from fiction writing about it? Mm. Well, we talked a little bit about this on the podcast about motherhood, but lately I've been getting a lot more curious about the experience of parenting. And one of the things that made me realize that that was the case is that I started representing all of these books about parenting. And, <laughs> and somebody was like, oh yeah, you do a lot of books about parenting. And I was like, no, I don't. And then I was like, oh my God, I do. I have so many books about parenting. Like your unconscious drives so hard. It's amazing. Yeah. I know, right? But it's <laughs> it's been really wonderful to help my authors develop books on things like, you know, my author Eloise Rickman is writing about children's rights right now. I represent an author named Susan Gollenbach who researches children's experiences and family forms that aren't traditional, like heterosexual man and woman and what that's like. My author, Emma Byrne, who wrote a book about the science of how children develop and learn and how to parent like a scientist. I'm selling a book right now about birth and what birth is like. And that's amazing that I get to do that. And I get to hang out with all of these experts and help them develop their ideas and kind of translate their expertise onto the page. And I'm not sure how much these books have really taught me about what it's like to be a parent, speaking of that idea of, of experience. And I'm not, I'm really not sure how much any book can prepare you for this, but they've given me so much knowledge on what we know about parenting and the body and other people's experiences. And that feels really empowering in its own right. And one of the best parenting nonfiction books that I've read is Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon, which I've definitely talked about on the show before. But this is a book, if you haven't encountered it, which is all about children who are different from their parents. And he takes that, you know, he uses that in a very broad definition. So he talks about children who are deaf, who whose parents aren't deaf, prodigies, autistic kids. He has a chapter about kids who commit like extremely violent acts. He has this amazing interview with the mother of one of the Columbine shooters, which wow. is just worth reading 
even separately from anything else in the book. But, you know, that's not really a, a parenting manual of any kind, but it's so wise and compassionate and thoughtful. And it made me really hopeful about parenting because that's the kind of message in the book. But, you know, there are those more informational books. And I know a lot of friends have gained a lot of knowledge and solace from from those books. And maybe they'll be something I'm more likely to pick up if I'm, you know, really contemplating the experience of parenting. So like Emily Oster is someone people talk about a lot. She wrote a book called Crib Notes and Expecting Better. Philippa Perry, who wrote the book You Wish Your Parents Had Read. A book that comes up a lot is Jennifer Senior's All Joy and No Fun, which actually I think that title gets at that the way that people talk about the different emotions you feel at the same time when you're parenting. Another genre of parenting nonfiction is the parenting memoir, which I've read less of. People talk about like books like Anne Enright's Making Babies and Megan O'Connell's And Now We Have Everything as really wonderful. I would say I'm not immediately drawn to these memoirs if somebody said this is a memoir about being a parent, which is interesting to me. And I was interrogating why that is. And I think it's actually because I fear that they will all be some version of the kind of what I was talking about, the why has nobody told me this before genre. And I'll just become very fearful about parenting (laughs) and not want to do it. (laughs) Though I did read The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, which I think we talked about a little bit on our motherhood show. And it describes the experience of having a child as, as her partner transitions. And this is a book that is deeply philosophically curious about these life changes, and I really loved it. And also, actually, I loved A Life's Work by Rachel Cusk, which I know you just read too, right? Yeah, I absolutely loved it. I mean, you know, I've I've got friends who loved it. I've got friends who hated it. I was very curious going in. And I was honestly, like, first of all, incredibly surprised by how funny it was. Like, brutally funny in places. And one of those books that feels just so direct and so true, you know, like uh, to me, as, as I read it, I felt, first of all, like compelled to keep reading in a way that's quite rare in memoir. I think it, I, I was like very intensely curious to find out what was going to happen, but also it felt so in line with its intention. Like there's no self-aggrandizement. There's no self-mythology going on. Like Cusk is incredibly brutally honest about herself and her own experience, which I think is amazing. And of course, on a sentence to sentence level, the writing is just electric because she is so, so talented. And I can see, you know, why it caused such a stir. I mean, it was first published in 2001, when I think it's fair to say that the general conversation around parenthood and especially motherhood, I think it's fair also to say, was quite a bit behind where it is now. And I would hope that it's generally just a lot less controversial to contemporary readers, right? Because I hope people are much more comfortable, you know, being a lot more open and accepting and honest about the deep ambivalence that is at the heart of a life change as enormous as having a child, you know? And I I think to deny that there is ambivalence there is like a very odd move. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And yes, like you, yeah, I've noticed a change in my reading habits around this. Nonfiction you know, really is where I can see that change actually. Because even five years ago, I wouldn't have been drawn to nonfiction specifically about parenting generally, right? And now I'm curious because I'm contemplating it. So I I just started reading The Baby on the Fire Escape by Julie Phillips, and it has the subtitle Creativity, Motherhood and the Mind Baby Problem. And basically, I was talking to a friend of mine who is um, an artist, she's a musician, and she's just had a second child about, you know, my sort of anxieties about parenthood and making art and being a writer and navigating all of that. And she was like, you have to read this book. <laughs> you have to read this book. And yeah, it's amazing. It's about six different artists who find different ways 
to balance their identities as parents and artists. And they're all women, so it's, you know, it's definitely within the maternal sphere. And Phillips is herself an award-winning biographer. So she brings this really, really wonderful eye for detail to this discussion. Um, and she's a parent herself, so she's also kind of reflecting on her own experience of being an academic and a writer and a parent. As a result, it kind of feels like you're in this really long conversation with a really smart, very generous and well-informed friend. And the, the structure, she, she talks about six different artists. So she discusses Alice Neal, Ursula K. Le Guin, Audre Lorde, Susan Sontag, Angela Carter and Doris Lessing, which is like, first of all, an extraordinarily epic lineup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she looks at how they managed to find their way through this experience of parenting and also art making at the same time. And, you know, they're not all great success stories. There's a lot of very sad things that happen to these different women. They also find like freedom in different ways. Like for Ursula K. Le Guin, it was it was actually the grounding that family life gave her that enabled her to kind of achieve her creative power, basically. And I think one of the things that I love the most about it is just as you were saying before, it shows how different it is for everyone, right? And all of these six six women that she's looking at, they're all having such different experiences in life in general because life is not the same for anyone. And this kind of myth of universal experience in general is something that we should be dispelling at all opportunities. (laughs) But I think getting into the nitty gritty details of their lives and kind of countering the like pram in the hall idea, you know, that the arrival of a baby means the end of creativity rather than the beginning of a new kind of creativity is just so important. But, you know, like that book is about more about the maternal experience. I think we've both mentioned more books that really are about parenthood within the maternal experience. And I guess, you know, that makes sense given that we're both cis women, but are there any that center the paternal experience or even can you think of anything that's like less rigidly gendered? Yeah, I mean, they definitely exist. There are definitely fewer of them out there, which says something about how our culture values these different roles, but they definitely exist. And in terms of books written by fathers about the experience of fatherhood, I mentioned Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates in Our Father's Show. And this is a book that he writes addressed to his son, which I think is a really lovely way to think into fatherhood. Mm. I know the writer Keith Gesson just published a memoir called Raising Rafi about the experience of the first five years of raising his son, which I haven't read, so can't say anything about the quality. But I... (laughs) (laughs) That sounded like such a dig. (laughs) Well, I, I I can't say. Who knows? Might be bad. Always a possibility. I'm interested that it exists, though. Um... There's a writer named Howard Cunnell who wrote a book called Fathers and Sons that was about his own relationship with his father, but also with his own child who's transitioning into a man and how it kind of makes him rethink masculinity. And then in terms of narratives that center the queer experience of of parenting, I, you know, I was doing some research about this and there definitely needs to be more. I mean, there are some manuals and there are some memoirs, but I would really be excited for even more perspectives on this. I am really excited to read Michelle T's Knocking Myself Up, which the subtitle of which is a memoir of my in, in parentheses, fertility, which is about T's quest to become pregnant as an older queer woman, but also contemplating the experience of parenting as a queer person. And that's exciting. 
I read the first chapter of that and I loved it. I mean, she's so funny and so direct, but also so smart. Mm. And there's also actually a book called The Unfamiliar, which I haven't read yet, but by Kirsty Logan, which is also a queer motherhood memoir. And, you know, Kirsty's a really great writer, so I'm sure that's interesting as well. But yeah, I would like to read about the experience of fatherhood specifically, actually. I mean, that book, The Howard Cunnell, sounds fascinating and brilliant. But I think it's also because I think you can get trapped within these gendered roles if you're in a, you know, a relationship that appears to be hetero or that is hetero. Like, I would like to read a bit more about what fatherhood is like for men, just as I hope my partner, who is a man, will read some of these books about motherhood, because I think, honestly, one of the things I see a lot in the male-female couples I know is a really astonishing lack of understanding of the other's experience, like when they become parents. And I think it's not just actually within themselves, it's also in relation to the different gendered social expectations that you suddenly have to exist within in a completely different way to when you're not a parent, you know? And I think, you know, yeah, thinking about how these roles are shaped by society and also by the conventions of whatever community a couple exists within, right? Whether that's a community that's straight or queer or secular or religious or wealthy or not, or traditional or, you know, transient, like all of these things shape expectations of parenthood and who will do what. And, you know, just from the anecdotal evidence of what I've seen myself, the couples who talk in a really detailed way about all of this stuff beforehand tend to fare better once the chaos whirlwind of a child lands in their lives because no one is making a silent assumption. And I think one of the issues with kind of gender and how it exists in our lives is that gender and the stereotypes that surround different gender expressions allow us to make a load of tacit assumptions about one another. And it happens to everybody because society encourages it to. And actually, you know, it's really important to remember that parenting in a couple is a negotiation from start to finish, right? It's like a negotiation of labor. It's a negotiation of experience. And I think it's something that, you know, I want to be incredibly mindful of as I think through these things and not just be thinking about what my own experience of it will be like. Yeah, I think that's very thoughtful and wise. And I wonder how much I would want to do that and then actually do it. But I, it's a nice goal. To yeah, have, well, I mean, it? obviously it's like also, you know, the time, like who has the time yeah. and, and all of that. But like, also I, I think that the choice to become a parent is such a huge colossal thing and it deserves your time, right? Like yeah. it's like something that in my view anyway, personally for myself, like I could never do it without thinking very, very deeply about it. But, you know, having said all of that, I have to say the book that I'm, really excited to read next is a book called Matrescence, which is by Lucy Jones. And she gets really deep into the enormous change that happens during pregnancy and then birth and also what follows and specifically looking at what's going on within the mind and the body of the birthing parents. So, you know, she's looking at the chemical and hormonal changes. She's looking at the experiential changes. She's looking at all of it in the context of society as well. You know, she explores things like the permanent changes to the brain that happen through parenting. And I heard her speak really, really brilliantly about it up in Edinburgh, actually on a panel with Sylvia Molnar talking about the nursery. So it was just, it was great. And what I found so interesting was she said that some of these neurological changes that happen in the birthing parent happen actually in anyone who does intense care work, regardless of their gender. So in parenting, it will happen to the parent who didn't give birth as well as the one who did, which is so, so fascinating. And I didn't realize that at all. 
But, you know, I think that a lot of the books we've talked about are about early parenthood, right? And about the transition from non-parenthood to parenthood. But of course, a person is only really a child for a very short part of their life. And, you know, parenting is obviously like incredibly intense and active at the beginning. You know, once you become a parent, obviously you never stop being a parent no matter what happens in your life. So I wonder like if you can think of any books that explore the experience of parenthood that comes later, maybe like parenting adults, you know? It's a very good question. And I'm sure there are so many books. I had trouble thinking of them. Oh, actually. <laughs> yeah, me too. No, me too. Well, I'm sure loads, right? There's loads. Yeah. Like, it, it, as in, there's probably loads where it's not the main focus, right? It's just part of the story. Yeah, it's not really talked about. Like, if somebody was pitching a book, I don't know if they would say it's a it's a book about parenting adult children. But actually, that's so interesting. And maybe that should be the kind of main focus of books rather than something that kind of happens on the side. The first book that came to mind was Jonathan Franz's The Corrections, which is about parents with adult children. And in part, the difficulty of that transition to adulthood when you have to renegotiate your relationship with your parents as one between two adults, which I think everyone goes through and everyone struggles with long into their adulthood. And yeah, I would never pitch the corrections as being about that, but it's definitely an element of it. And in fact, you know, thinking about it, I think a lot of family sagas are about this because they follow people as they age and renegotiate their relationship to their parents. And so, you know, any any story that that follows somebody over their life has some element of this, though I'd have no examples at my fingertips. I don't know. <laughs> I have one, which is a book that you read first, which is Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. Yeah. Which is, you know, this grand generational novel. And actually, I think it looks at how those relationships change with grandparents as well, because one of the very important relationships in that book is between a grandmother and her grandson. Those kinds of books, they look at how emotional experiences affect the next generation and what gets passed down and how that shapes the choices of people you know, one, two, maybe even three generations on within a family, which is kind of what we're talking about a little bit. I mean, I recently read Anne Patchett's latest novel, Tom Lake, for work. And it's not a book I would have picked up, I think, if I hadn't had to read it for work. And actually, I'm I'm really glad I did. But it very much is about a woman and her adult daughters who all lock down together during the pandemic. And um, they're on this very idyllic setting on a family farm. And of course, this is kind of the perfect closed set for Patchett, within which she can then explore, you know, these relationship dynamics that she's interested in. And, you know, a large part of the story is the mother kind of telling her daughters a story from her own past. But it's a clever device because it means that Patchett can show us how a parent represents themselves to their children, right? To their adult children. But also it really looks at how the different ways that this mother's choices have kind of reverberated down in the lives of her three daughters who are all very different from one another. And I think it's a great little play almost, you know? And really this idea of like digging into what it means to navigate the boundary between the identity that comes before parenthood and then the one that comes after once your children are no longer children. And, and as you say, you know, you go through that big relationship shift where you're suddenly kind of facing each other as adults. And, you know, just as the the children have to encounter the parent 
as a full person, maybe for the first time, the parent has to let go of the imprint of the child as a child and like receive them as an adult. I mean, it, it was my first Anne and in some ways it was a little bit saccharine for me, but I also really enjoyed reading it. And it's a book with a lot of heart and like, it's kind of a pleasure to be with her in her writing, you know? Yeah. I haven't read, uh, I like Anne I haven't read that one and I don't think of her as a particularly saccharine writer. So that's interesting. I think maybe it's partly the setting. I don't know. Maybe it's just in this, there is something a bit saccharine mm. about it. I mean, it's also, it is kind of exploring the pleasure of this woman's kind of motherhood with these adult daughters in a way that I think does hit a little bit sweetly. Mm. And probably that, you know, reflecting on what we were saying earlier about like, maybe because of the legacy of those kind of idealized portraits of parenting, it, it doesn't land as it was intended. And actually that's a real shame. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like there should be allowed to be books out there about the pleasure of, you know, like there's, she writes that this, this narrator has this kind of guilty delight at having this time with her daughters, because if it weren't for the pandemic, they would never have all come home. Right. Yeah. I read a newspaper article about that, about all of the parents and kids reconnecting and actually that it was a really wonderful side effect in a way of having to move back in for the pandemic was that it strengthened their relationship in interesting ways. And and actually that does bring to mind another pandemic novel, interestingly, which is Lucy by the Sea by Elizabeth Strout, which features Lucy Barton. A lot of it is about her relationship with her daughters, her her adult daughters, and what they're going through during the pandemic. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Well, I think we should finish on like the the one thing we haven't really talked about which is poetry like what about poetry and parenthood are there any poets you like who write about parenthood or any poems in particular Mm. well I've read some really wonderful poems by Holly McNish about parenthood and motherhood in particular and her poems are very direct and embodied which I've always really appreciated but actually the poem that immediately came to mind about parenting is a poem um, called Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Do you know this one? I don't. Are you going to read it? Yeah. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> it's from the perspective of a son, so not a parent, but it, it's really about parenting. So I will, I'll read it now. It's a short poem. Don't worry. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well, what did I know, what did I know, of love's austere and lonely offices? Oh my God. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I've got goosebumps austere and lonely offices isn't it it's incredible it's heartbreaking it's really heartbreaking and it's a poem about I mean it's really a poem about love and how it arrives in confusing ways for children and how sometimes parental love and what it is expressed as only really arrives too late in adulthood right but also it's like it's about pain that parents can inflict on their children. And I think this is a very ambivalent poem. That line, the chronic angers of that house, oh my God, yeah. really haunts the poem, even if he's also reappraising his father's actions and his father's 
love in some ways. So yeah, I, I love that poem. How about you? Well, mine is a bit different in tone, <laughs> but it's also a poem that I first read when I was young. In fact, my parents told me to read it <laughs> when I was very young and it has stayed with me. And it's, of course, This Be the Verse by Philip Larkin. My parents used to repeat the first two lines of this poem to me frequently. So I'm just going to read it. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. <laughs> Which I think is so great. And I definitely adhered to that for many, many, many years. I was like, well, the easiest way to deal with it all is just not to have any children. Simples. <laughs> um, and, you know, my mind is changing slowly now. But I think it's a great poem because it, similarly, it's doing something very different to the Hayden that you read. But similarly, it's about like understanding your parents in the wider context of their own lives and not just as these people who like were not able to meet your every need all the time. Yeah. And um if we're all fucked up, we might as well be funny about it in poetry, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we will be back shortly with our cultural recommendations. Don't go away. Okay. Hi, everyone. We are back to give our cultural recommendations. So Carrie, what's up first for you? Up first is a show I recently inhaled called Slow Horses. <gasps> yeah. Yeah, I know. I've actually already talked to you about this. I love this show. <laughs> and I know you've seen it and it's great. It's on Apple TV. There are two seasons so far. I know there are more to come though, which is great. And they're based on a series of spy novels by Mick Herron about a fictional place called Slough House. And that's in, in quotes because it's not actually in Slough, it's in London, but it's a rundown department where MI5 spies are dumped when they mess up, basically. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, the spies keep getting involved in things and plots and maybe they're the only ones who can save the day. It's incredibly compelling. It's funny. You can tell that Heron is a reader of Le Carre and the storytelling has that same care taken with the world and the kind of drabness of the world. And it's very good on drab London and drab British things in general. Brown, also, brown, yeah. brown, brown. Everything <laughs> yes. is brown or grayish. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Um, also the vocabulary of espionage. He has his kind of own... They're, people called the dogs and yeah it's compelling and it's very thrilling it's also very funny in a way that Le Carre is not and a big part of that in the show is Gary Oldsman playing this character named Jackson Lamb who's the head of Slough House he's a former Cold War spy it's sort of hinted that he was a very good spy but now he's completely given up and just wants to eat and fart in peace. And he farts a lot. He farts so much. Yeah, it's, like, like, it's it was a little too much a bit for too me. Much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, it's like, yeah. <laughs> I actually think they toned down the farting in the second season because so many people <laughs> felt the, the, the way that we did. But yeah, it's a great cast. Kristen Scott Thomas has a, has a great role. And there's this whole 
bunch of rejects at Slough House who you get to know and who banter with each other. And the banter is almost as fun as the really compulsive spy plots that they get embroiled in. So it's not going to like change your perspective on parenthood, but (laughs) it is a really wonderful, fun show. And I can't wait for the next season. What's your first recommendation? Very different vibe. Mine is the Marina Abramovich exhibition at the Royal Academy, which... Oh boy, very, di- very, very different. different. Yeah, I mean, this exhibition is extraordinary. Like it it really hollowed me out. I needed to take a minute after I saw it and sort of sit with it. But it, I also found it extraordinarily inspiring. I mean, first of all, it is the first ever exhibition of that size dedicated to a female artist at the Royal Academy, which is in itself appalling, obviously. Like it's a huge indictment of the sexism of the art world, but also off the bat, it's a massive deal, right? It's a big moment. I mean, Tracy Emin had had one there a little while ago, but it was in a smaller set of rooms. They didn't give her the full, full kind of thing. So, you know, fascinating for that reason. Really it fascinating. is monumental. I can't believe that. No, I know. It's shocking. It's really, really, really shocking. It's a huge thing, this exhibition, you know, like it's a, not just a, in size, but also in um, impact. It's monumental. It's very confronting in, in places, but I also found it really profoundly emotional. Like I wept quite a lot through it. I also found it emotionally draining, which I think is, you know, the intention of some of her pieces. There were moments of really profound beauty and lightness as well. Also very weird juxtapositions with kind of extremely expensively undressed people taking selfies in some of the work, which is just never going to not be a head fuck for me. I really couldn't get my head around it at all. But the really cool thing, which I actually didn't realize before going in, is that they have young artists trained by Abramovich doing re-performances of some of her old pieces, which I found particularly moving and profound and also it was very, very interesting to see the ways these performances have been adapted to suit contemporary audiences. So some of them, there were basically options to opt out that were not part of the original stagings and kind of speak to like, probably a more multicultural society where there are more things to consider Mm -hmm. with your audience, but also maybe a more censorious time. Like I was curious about that. It's also very fascinating to see the ways that she reckons with the temporality of performance art, which obviously like by definition is not something you can experience if you're not there. The way she's chosen to record some of the pieces. So there is a trace of them using video art. There's also like a recreation of her very famous piece in New York where she lived in an art gallery for 12 days and it's a life-size recreation in real time. So yeah, I think it's phenomenal. I would really recommend going alone if you go so you can take your time with it and give the work the space it deserves and really interact with the work rather than with another person um, and and leave plenty of time because you'll want to see all the performances when you're there and they kind of stagger them. But yeah. Be prepared for it to be an intense experience, basically. I will go when I'm feeling mentally robust, I think. Yeah, I think you will get a lot from it. And I would also just mainly selfishly would love to talk to you about it. <laughs> What's your second one? A quick little one. Well, my my second quick little one is that a couple of weekends ago, I went to visit my dear friend, Jen, who is currently staying with her parents in Liverpool, which is a city I always love visiting, but this is not a cultural recommendation of Liverpool. I mean, although, I kind of want it to be. I love that. <laughs> if you're thinking about it, I really recommend going. You know, I don't know it at all. It's one that I don't it's, know at all. It's a really cool city. I mean, it has this very complicated history, but I really get the sense when I go there that they're reckoning with it as the city that really was built on 
like the blood of slaves. Like everything about Liverpool was built because of the slave trade. But I don't know, all of the institutions there, I think, are thinking pretty deeply about it and could obviously do more. But it's it's also a city that like it has really fun restaurants and really great museums and just seemingly a lot of attention and dedication to culture whether it be music or art and i always get that feeling when i'm there that it's that it's a place that really loves and respects the arts and also likes to have fun it's a very fun place and everyone's way more friendlier than in london as well which is nice we're going to get liverpool listeners in touch who are like, you don't know anything about our city. But anyway, I do, I do love it. And, and my recommendation within this is that we went to Tate Liverpool and we saw the biennial there, which is now sadly closed, but the permanent collection is really wonderful. It's a, it's a big old warehouse on the docks. It's a really cool space. They've curated it in a really interesting way. They're thinking really deeply about what art is and what it does and how it sits in place as well. I think that the Tate is thinking very deeply about Liverpool as a place and situating different artists within it. And I just found it a really edifying experience. Most of the exhibitions are free as well. It's just a really cool museum. So if you are thinking about a trip to Liverpool, go and when you're there, go to Tate Liverpool. A great recommendation. Thank you, Octavia. How about you? What's your last one. Mine is a podcast called Witch, which is on BBC Sounds at the moment. And I just, I loved it so much. So it's presented by India Rackerson and really brilliantly produced by my friend Lucy Dillove, who's an excellent audio producer. And it's basically, it's in, I can't remember how many parts, maybe 10 or 12 kind of shorter episodes. And it is a really thorough and very original look at what it means to be a witch, both today and also historically. So she talks to some kind of contemporary witches, but she also goes back through history and kind of thinks about re-examining things that we think we know about witches, right? Like we all have a kind of sense of maybe what the witch hunts were or the witch trials or what it meant to be a witch. But I think actually it's kind of arguing that a lot of us don't really know the history of it very much. And so it kind of gets into all of that and and looks at the misconceptions we might have about things like the witch trials. But it also looks at the figure of the witch in relation to kind of climate and climate change, which I thought was fascinating. Folklore and contemporary protest as well, and how the figure of the witch can be appropriated to really useful ends now by people who are maybe living on the margins or who are being pushed to the margins by like landlord society, for example, is like one of the very interesting stories in it. And she also talks about like, what are the ethics of making money from magic, for example. So it's really, it's just a very original, thoughtful, well-researched series about it. And she's a really delightful voice to spend time with. So yeah, strong recommendations to listen to which. Sounds good. Well, that's it. That's all we've got time for. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with the full show very yeah, soon. We'll and until soon. then, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> bye.